to Matthew chapter 13, and we'll be focusing our time together, uh, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, and uh, I would encourage you, would you stand as I read God's word to us this evening? Matthew 13, beginning at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are overwhelmed by your worthiness. Overwhelmed by the grandeur of your holiness and of your greatness and of your power and your eternity and immensity. And and yet, O God, you have dwelt among us and you have walked the dust, Christ, and What a wonder and a treasure the gospel is. And if there would be any objective tonight together, as we have gathered from different congregations, one Lord, that we might treasure that gospel even more deeply. So Lord, would you aid us toward that end? And Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you, would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you speak to us? God of glory, speak. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, these are the parables of the kingdom. If you haven't figured that part out yet. Chapter 13 of Matthew's Gospel is a string of parables. These miniature stories that Jesus tells, mainly to his disciples, but to crowds as well. Uh, And they function differently, interestingly enough. Earlier in the chapter, we read of how the parables function differently among different people. For some, the parables are, uh, they they illuminate and they bring greater light to the kingdom than ever before. And for others, it actually is, uh, it it creates a a spiritual density almost, as though they weren't able to comprehend. We we read that in uh, 14, 15, 16, quoting Isaiah there. Um, And so the, the parables function Differently, and they, they're intended to land almost differently. We see in Jesus' con- conversations, his discourses elsewhere, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The implication is not everybody hears. And if you're a preacher, you know that. It feels like some days it feels like nobody hears. Some days it feels like, do I even speak English? Uh, But God in his faithfulness takes his word and he does his work with it, even through broken instruments like us preachers, at least this preacher. But the parables of the kingdom, they they function 
interesting and they function differently. But there's a hidden presupposition. There's a there's a hidden facet to the parables of the kingdom. And the, the hidden presupposition is that the kingdom of God is coming as a rival or is coming as light into the darkness of an alternative kingdom. There is a rival authority, if you will. There's a rival kingdom against which the kingdom of heaven is set in relief. Why else would we talk, would Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven over and over and over again if there was not something else? If there was not a domain of darkness, if there was not a reign of the God of this world against which Jesus is coming in opposition. And what we have, not only in the Gospels, but in the story of Christ, we have the very King of the universe, the King of glory that the psalmist talks about. He is coming as the one who is going to reclaim that which is rightfully His. That this earth, these people, these souls, these minds are in the grip of something and of someone that is the antithesis and an antagonist to God. Maybe you don't believe me. Let's take a tour quickly as I try to make this point that I don't know if we talk about enough. Let's jump. I'm going to make three scriptures in John, one scripture in 2 Corinthians 4, and one scripture in Ephesians 2. If you want to leapfrog, you feel good at your Bible drill tonight, come with me. If not, follow along. If not, write it down. If anything, don't fall asleep. Okay, John chapter 12, verse 31. Now, all of our John passages are entering into the Olivet Discourse, this this last great teaching block of Jesus for his disciples before he is crucified. John 12 isn't quite there, but the rest of them are. We're heading in this direction. And he says in John 12, verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That Jesus, the culmination of the righteous and perfect life of Jesus, is his crucifixion on Golgotha's hill. And he is saying, here is the judgment of the world. Here and now, the ruler of this world is cast out. Who might that be? It doesn't have to be rhetorical. Who might that be? Satan, devil, adversary. All right. All right. 14, John chapter 14, verse 30. Again, this is in the middle of the the discourse here. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. So here here again we have, not only is the ruler of this world being cast out, but right now in chapter 14, he's coming. That Satan is embodied in the betrayal of Judas and then in the mocking of the soldiers and the crucifixion. That Satan is present there. Darkness, light. Darkness trying to extinguish the light of the world. Chapter 16, verse 11 of John. Um, Let me hop up. Uh, And when he comes, that's the helper of the Holy Spirit. Verse 8. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment 
because the ruler of this world is judged. All right, all there in, in John's gospel, we hear about the ruler of this world. And the implication is that this is Satan or the adversary. All right, let's, let's get some Pauline stuff going. Second Corinthians chapter four. What's the apostle Paul say about this? Second Corinthians chapter four. Uh, verse three. Four, verse three, and we'll read in the four. Um, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that the, not only is Satan doing combat with Jesus, even from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, you have Jesus being led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. By the way, it's a it's a wilderness test that he passes where Israel tested in the wilderness failed. So Jesus has been the light locked horns with the darkness since he came. And here we learn not only is Satan the adversary of Jesus, whom he has no claim on, right? They're not equals. God and the devil are not equals. Light and darkness are not equals. Satan exists, Satan exists at the, if you will, the permission of God for a time. But here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we see that Satan enslaves the unbelieving. And that in essence, and I don't know all of you, I'm not your pastor, I'm thankful to be preaching this tonight uh, in this building. I love, I love Spirit's Creek, but you know, something, just get, you feel at home in the octagon. Welcome to the octagon. Um, that... He is actively enslaving those who do not believe in Jesus. So there's a sense in which, not even a sense, that we were once there. All of us. If you are a Christian tonight, you know what it is to be in darkness. And you know what it is to be in the light. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's actively doing this to our neighbors. If we're going to understand the parables of the kingdom, it needs to be set in relief of the kingdom of heaven against the God of this world and his minions. Ephesians chapter 2, verse... I'll probably just read 1 and 2, even though this chapter is... It's good. Ephesians, which is after Galatians, before Philippians. uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, that we before God, that's verse 4, but God being rich in mercy with the great love which he's loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Before we get there, we were walking in the course of the prince of the power of the air. We were enshrouded, enslaved, Not just to sin, not just to guilt, not just to shame, but to Satan. And so when the parables of the kingdom come, 
And when Jesus comes preaching the kingdom, that's, this is his very first message. It's, by the way, John the Baptist's first message too, but the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe. When Jesus is first pre- preaching, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe that he is, if you will, the, the conquering king coming into enemy-held territory that is rightfully his. And the parables of the kingdom help illustrate and open that up for us that whereas the first century Jews... Jews, let me just take a breath because I'm getting all super hyped here. The first century Jews expected a certain type. They, they understood pieces of this. They understood that the world wasn't as it was supposed to be, that they were a, a chosen people of God, oppressed and uh, beaten down and right now under the thumb of the Romans during Jesus's day. And so they expected that when the kingdom of God came, when the kingdom of the Messiah came, that he would come as a military ruler that he might come as you know like Hannibal crossing the Alps or whatever it is that he would come with this great army and dominate and rule and and set up a kingdom like David and Solomon but even better and too often this is how we Christians act like the kingdom of God is going to show up in our midst we look for the glitz and we look for the glam. We look for the charismatic leader. We look for the, the strong voice on television. We look for some powerful demonstration. Saying, there's the kingdom. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people gathered one time and heard a sermon and prayed somewhere. There's the kingdom. And everything that Matthew 13 tells us is that that very well may be. But the kingdom always comes first, much smaller, always comes in ways that were unexpected. That if you're going to see the kingdom, if you're going to find the kingdom, it cannot be according to the rules of the domain of darkness, power, fame, strength. But it must come according to the rules of the kingdom of heaven. Mustard seed, small Unexpected, a treasure hidden in a field, a pearl of great worth. We find the kingdom of God in such places. Maybe you've never bumped into a treasure in a field. I'm assuming that you might not be here. Neither have I. But you have bumped into the kingdom. These two mirror parallel. Parallel parables. Get my lips working. The parallel parables of the treasure hidden in a field and the pearl of great worth. They illustrate for us something different. Now, whereas a lot of the other parables that are going on in chapter 13, they end with a note of a reminder of the coming judgment. The wheat and the tares, for example. Even the parable of the net, the dragnet that follows this parable, ends with a reminder of the judgment that there will be a great separating out of the righteous and the wicked. No, what's happening here is that there's almost as though Jesus takes a pause. Says, if you want to enter into this kingdom, if you want to have this kingdom. Well, one, you got to find it. And we have two ways of finding it here. One is a accidental discovery. God just sort of happens on a treasure hidden in a field. And the second is an active search for 
that which is of great worth. So the first one, this accidental discovery, this kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, we have no idea. It's like he was just walking along one day and stubbed his toe. And in my mind, it's like a pirate chest. Um, it's probably not like that in Jesus's mind. It's something from uh, one of those Mickey Mouse. Co- Anyways, um, my kids are little. All right. So be patient with me. Um, but he sort of just happens upon it. And if we were to have the time, which would be a, that would be a great summer Sunday night of praise, saying, let's just share our testimonies. How did you come to know the Lord? For some of us, it would be, you know, I, I came to know the Lord very relatively early in my life. I grew up in the church and, uh, and the Lord really, anyways, it, it would be sort of a story like that where I just sort of was, there was, a, there was someone who was seeking for me and I ended up seeking for the kingdom and I, I discovered it by God's grace. Others of you would say, and God met me. And we, we know these people that have these sort of revolutionary, paradigm-shifting testimonies. Where they didn't see it coming. And yet the grace of God comes in power. And this is what I'm talking about, these two differences. There is this accidental discovery. Stubbing of the toe on the glory of God of the gospel. And then there's this active search for That which is priceless. But once he finds it, there is a wholehearted shift. When he finds it, he covers it up. And he goes and sells everything he has in order to buy that field. Now, we could go into Jewish and rabbinic law about found treasure and lost and found. And I'm not going to chase that rabbit. If you have questions about that. Feel free to ask me um, or email me or ask your pastor, even better. Um, I love you, but you know. But he sells everything. He's caught a glimpse of the treasure, and he knows that the treasure is worth more than everything he has combined. The treasure that he's accidentally discovered like a lightning bolt from heaven or a stubbing of the toe on the ground there in this field, that he knows that this is worth it all. And there is no, there's no equivocation. There's no second guessing. He immediately turns tail, sells his estate in order to, can you imagine how much of a madman this guy looked like to everybody around him? You're going to sell that for that? You have this house, you have this land, I'm just, maybe, You have this crops and you're going to sell it for a barren piece of dirt. You are a fool. And dear ones, this is exactly how you look when you chase after the kingdom of Jesus. This is how you look to a world enslaved and enshrouded in darkness. You look like a fool and that's all right. Be a fool for Jesus, somebody said. But there's something else here. It's not just this enthusiastic Commitment to the treasure. But there is a wholesale renunciation of everything that was before. There's a whole, there's a rough cut in this man's life. There is before treasure, BT, and there's after treasure, AT. Let me read you Luke chapter 9. 
verse 23. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. If you would come after Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. And now hear me clearly for you who would follow Jesus. There's no half in it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't half it. You can't have a big toe in the treasure of Jesus and the rest of your body in the darkness of the world. This is why over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the prophets do it. Moses does it. Who's a prophet? But they, they lay it out. Choose you this day. I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. You have to choose. You can't ride the rails. You can't sit on the fence. You can't be lukewarm. You're lukewarm. You're cold. You're dead. He's going to spew you out of his mouth. What this man does when he's gripped by the treasure. Now, too often you hear what I just said as a scourge of guilt and whip at your back. But what this scripture tells us is that the invitation to leave it all for Jesus is not an invitation to go bankrupt. It's an invitation to gain everything. Another way to say it, you must lose everything if you will gain everything. Everything. If you would have Jesus, he must be a treasure worth it. If Jesus is not worth it, it's not going to be worth it. And you're going to continually go start going back. If you think you're following Jesus and you've just beheld the church, you're going to start drifting back. If you've just read a few super spiritual books or maybe mediocre spiritual books or heretical books or whatever you're, whatever you're into and you're, you're thinking that you have this relationship but you're looking at all the things that surround Jesus rather than Jesus himself. You're going to drift back and you're going to look back. And Jesus says, says elsewhere, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Remember Lot's wife. If you would have Jesus, you must have him alone. There's great reward and there's great joy. And what we have to know that when we renunciate the old life, when we let go of the self and of selfishness and of pride and serving ourselves and being concerned about our reputations, being concerned about everything this world tells us to be concerned about. We have a promise from Jesus. Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, this is after the uh, rich young ruler incident, incident 
Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel and to everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I can promise you, Jesus is worth it. But you have to resolve now by the grace of God before the Spirit of God that you would have Jesus and Jesus alone. That you would be willing to sell everything you have if it meant just Jesus. What if we get to heaven and it's just Jesus? He is the one who makes heaven heaven. Throw away the golden streets. Throw away the crystal sea. Throw away everything else that you have in your mind. Would heaven still be heaven if you just had Jesus? Jim Elliott, who is a a 20th century martyr, you might be familiar with that story of the group that went down to Ecuador and they landed on a um, sandbank in the middle of the river and they were speared to death by an Amazonian tribe that they were trying to reach with the gospel. But he he kept this wonderful um, journal and he has this very famous quote. He says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May that be us. The second parable, this merchant who's looking for fine pearls. This is an intentional search for treasure. Can you imagine a merchant who, as he's going along, you know, years after years, you you sort of get... You understand what makes a a great pearl a great pearl. And in the ancient world, the the first century, pearls were like diamonds are today. They were extremely valuable. They were extremely hard to find. They were rare. And so he was well acquainted with the pearls of the world. So when he finds this pearl of great worth, if he's surprised, then we ought to be surprised as well. This is not some, you know, baker or fill in the blank. Somebody who doesn't know anything about pearls that discovers this great pearl. But as a man who is well acquainted with pearls, well acquainted with treasure and value. And he knows enough to know that it's worth it. And again, if I'm going to boil all of this down tonight, if you were to put a target on the back of the wall for what I want to happen in your heart right now is that Jesus would be more worth it to you tonight than ever before in your life. Because God knows what would happen in our churches and in our community if that were true in us. Jesus is more worth it today. He's more worth my sacrifice. He's more worth my sacrifice of time and of talent, of treasure. He's more worth me sacrificing, you know, awkward conversations to share the gospel, to do whatever it takes to see Jesus, Jesus on every mind and every heart in this community. He's more worth it than ever. That's my prayer for you and for me. But it requires something of us. It requires this 
Get rid of the baggage. Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the love for the world. Get rid of your love for sin. I said, we took the Lord's Supper this morning and I said to our people, as we're looking at the cup, I said, if your love for sin is greater than your love for Jesus, don't take that cup. If you insist on walking in the darkness while looking into the light, dear one, do not be surprised when you spend darkness, you spend eternity in darkness. We have to see the great treasure of Jesus and the great invitation that we have right now to possess it. There is a single mindedness that must captivate us when we consider the invitation of Jesus to follow him in his kingdom. We see it earlier in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to wrap up someday. Maybe this day. <laughs> Sorry. Matthew six nineteen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in, or, yeah, do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You could fill in the blank there. You cannot serve God and fill in the blank. You must have a single-minded pursuit of Jesus. A single-minded commitment to Jesus. That if you were to make a list of your priorities, just go home. If you have a whiteboard or a tablet, maybe you're old school and you have a chalkboard at your house, make a list of your priorities And it's not just that Jesus needs to be on the top. Jesus needs to be the ecosystem in which all of those priorities exist. If any of my priorities are out of of joint with who Jesus is, it needs to be dropped. It needs to be taken behind the shed like old yeller and shot. We have to have a single-minded commitment to Jesus. Thomas Watson, who is a uh, 17th century Puritan. I want to leave you with this. Okay, I'm going to leave you. We're going to leave each other. And I want to leave you with this. And I'll say a couple words after. But um, It says, whatever is in the way of heaven, though there be a lion in the way, I will encounter it like a resolute commander that charges the whole body of the army. The Christian is resolved, come what will, he will have heaven. Did you catch that? The Christian is resolved, come what will, he will have heaven. Where there is this resolution, danger must be despised, difficulties trampled on, terrors condemned. This is the first thing in holy violence, resolution of will. I will have heaven whatever it costs me. And this resolution must be in the strength of Christ. I will have heaven, whatever it costs me, because heaven is worth it. Jesus and his kingdom are worth it.
Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that your word would dwell richly in us by your grace and through your power. That right now, God, as the adversary begins his work on this seed of your word spoken, we ask, O Lord, that you would make our hearts fertile soil and that you would bind his hands as he comes to pluck it off the path. That we would long for the kingdom with every ounce that the Spirit gives us. That we would desperately seek to know Jesus and to know that, Lord Jesus, you are worth it and all, worth all of it and more. You are the treasure. You are a supreme value. Would it ring in our hearts tonight that Christ is worth it? We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.